Almighty Father in heaven, who has called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. You have looked upon our sin and have shown us lavish grace. Thank you, Father. Thank you for delivering your people from the shackles of sin and guilt and misery and making us your church, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for your own possession. We confess, we confess that our hearts so often doubt these glorious truths. We get lost in our daily routines and overwhelmed by our constant tasks And we forget. We forget who we are in Christ. We forget what we are called to do. Grant, I pray, your spirit this morning, O Lord. During this hour, stir our faith and repentance. Give us hope and peace, for your people need these things. That we might indeed receive and proclaim the excellencies that come from your hand this great mercy that you've shown toward us. We ask for these eternal things in the name of Jesus Christ, our blessed Savior and Deliverer. Amen. Amen. Well, if I came to you after the service this morning and I invited you and asked you to come and attend the prayer meeting this evening or this afternoon, and you agreed to do so, you may adjust your schedule and begin to order your afternoon so that you can get back out here at 5 o'clock to be a part of the prayer meeting. Now, imagine with me for a moment if I, instead of asking you to come and attend the prayer meeting, if I came to you and said, "Um, I have an urgent appointment this evening I need to attend to, can you lead the prayer meeting this evening? Now, that would, I would assume, cause your afternoon to be quite different. Though your adjustments may be there, they are going to be much more significant. The fact that you are now leading the prayer meeting is going to be, require a lot more effort, a lot more attention, and a lot more responsibility. My point with this illustration, apart from inviting you to the prayer meeting, is to let you know that we need to understand just how significant it is when our role changes when what we think we are responsible to do or to be has changed, will change everything. Moving from the role of attender to the role and responsibility of leader, for example, in the prayer meeting, means that everything changes in a very significant way. This morning, I'd like for us to reflect a bit on how we think of ourselves, our standing, who we are as covenant members of Sovereign Grace Baptist Church. Is this body of believers How do you understand yourself day to day, week in and week out? Now, everything about what has happened in the book or this letter of 1 Peter up to this point, chapters 1 and 2, everything from chapter 1, verse 1 until now, chapter 2, verse 8, we're looking now this morning at verses 9 and 10, everything leading up to this really um, has been putting together and building the pieces, assembling all the different truths so that verses 9 and 10 will make sense. And so this is really the, the climax, the, 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 real, the real truth that Peter has been aiming at and warning these believers that were scattered throughout the dispersion who had lost everything as elect exiles 
as followers of Christ. These 33 verses then really uh, build the pieces, put the framework together for us to understand verses 9 through 10. I would encourage you to read those verses earlier today if you have not had the opportunity to do that. Peter is addressing how the Christians of his day understood themselves to be um, in this world that's so hostile to them, in this world that's so pushing back against them, how, Peter is asking, how do you understand yourself? Now, why would Peter be concerned about this? Why would Peter be concerned about how the exiled saints thought of themselves? Was it merely like in the contemporary world today, he was trying to give them a self-esteem talk? Was he trying to encourage them by asking them to reach down deep within themselves to draw out strength and encouragement? Well, if the letter started this way, if the letter started with verses 9 and 10, then we might be tempted to think that. But we have the previous verses to assure us that Peter is not acting like a modern-day therapist, calling these saints to empty introspection or absurd self-affirmation. But instead, because the world is treating these saints so horribly, maligning them, treating them with hostility, could it be that they are beginning to believe the things that are being said about them and how they're being treated? They're, they're being treated as worthless members of society, to be cast out. And in fact, that's exactly what happened to them and their families. Could it be that being treated this way was causing them to be weary and even for some hopeless because it caused them to lose so much of what they treasured and what they valued in this world? Now, we saw just how honest and forthright Peter is in the previous verses to explain that it should not shock us, any of us, that humanity, all of humanity at large, is going to reject Jesus. And this was not only happening to them, but it was also foretold and experienced by the saints of old. We saw this in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 2. Look there in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. It says, So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, there they are, those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, those who do not believe, they stumble because they disobey the word. And this last line confirms that it is the Lord that's working and ordering these things. This is not something that's happening random or by circumstance. It says there in the end of verse 8, As they, those who disbelieve, those who disobey the word, as they were destined to do by Almighty God, obviously. And since these exiled Christians of Peter's day lived during a time when Jesus was no longer on earth walking around, when all of humanity was maligning and rejecting Christ, how were they doing that? Well, they were doing that by rejecting Christ's followers, by maliciously speaking and harshly treating all those who name the name of Christ. Peter is warning the exiles of his day, and even us today, to not be surprised by this harsh treatment by those who are around us in the world and his hostility toward the Lord Jesus Christ, but instead to realize that the slander and the suffering will come for those who follow in Christ's steps and seek to follow him, because when Christ was on earth, he was despised by men. And so we too 
will be despised by men. And instead of having your image of what it means to suffer, all of us are sitting here thinking, okay, we're suffering. Yes, right. I was, I was in a place the other day and I had no cell phone service. Suffering. Going through the Chick-fil-A drive through and they, and they didn't put my fries in there. Suffering, right? That's what sometimes we think of. But instead of doing that, I want us to peek into the rest of 1 Peter. And I want us to look, if you would. So get your Bibles here. We're going to rifle through a couple pages here of 1 Peter and look at how is it that they were suffering. We can actually have clues from what Peter is speaking to them about and encouraging them in. We see how they were suffering, and it really gives us a picture of what it might look like for us as the world continues to become more and more hostile toward Christ and toward Christ's followers. So we note that this is the end of the first of three sections in 1 Peter. 1 Peter is divided into three sections. I mentioned this when we started this book together or this letter together. Um, It goes from chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 10. That's the end of the first section. Notice with me in verse 11 of chapter 2, it says, Beloved, that begins the second major section of 1 Peter. And we go all the way over till chapter 4, look with me, verse 12. Chapter 4, verse 12 also begins with this title, this affirmation. Beloved, do not be surprised. That's the third and last section of 1 Peter. So we have 1 Peter divided up into these three parts. So I want you to notice that we're we're transitioning from this major pillar-like truth in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 2 to now looking at some of the practices of how these saints are to be living out their lives as elect exiles. Notice with me first in verse 11, it says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Here, Peter is clearly declaring them to be sojourners and exiles here on earth. In other words, the things that you thought you obtained here on earth, the possessions you thought you had, is not your true inheritance. As he says in chapter 1, their true inheritance is that which is in heaven, kept for them. So chapter 2, verse 11 speaks of the fact that they may lose all material wealth as sojourners and exiles and refugees, but that is to be expected. Look with me at verse 12 then. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers... So it seems here that Peter is explaining to them, and they probably are already aware of the fact, that there are those who are not believers who are speaking to them as if they are evildoers. Because you will be spoken of as an evildoer, as one who is following Christ. Chapter 2, verse 12. Chapter 2, verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. All right, this is basically speaking of the relationship between bosses and employees. Employees being the servants, bosses being the masters. Servants, be subject to your masters. Or employees, be subject to your bosses with all respect. Not only to the good and gentle, well, those are the kind of bosses we want, right? But he's saying, as a follower of Christ, also the unjust. You mean the unjust boss I'm supposed to submit to? That's exactly what he's saying. Why? For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. He's expecting them to suffer unjustly under their The authority of their boss. Why? Because they are believers. Continue with me, if you will, in chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that 
even if some do not obey the word. Speaking of husbands, husbands that are disobedient husbands, husbands that do not obey the word is a, is a, 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 a phrase that basically means husbands that are not believers, husbands that do not follow after Christ, husbands that are not obedient to the word, that they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. So see, we see here, disobedient husbands were causing fear in, the, in wives. We see that as we continue to move through at the very last verse in that paragraph there in verse 6. It says, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening, what would be frightening them? Their husbands that are disobedient to God's word. Notice with me in verse 9 how Peter is calling them. He says here, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Why would he say that? Because it might be that they are being treated in an evil way. They are being reviled. He's saying, do not repay people who treat you in an evil way with evil. Do not treat people who are reviling you with reviling. But instead, what are we to do as God's people, as those who are exiled saints, sojourners, and, and, and those who are refugees? We are to, according to this, bless. For this, is, for this you were called, and that you may obtain a blessing. Look with me in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. I'm just going through and looking at just a handful of these so we can see some of the things that Peter obviously is indicating that he understands the way they are suffering and he's calling them to faithfulness in their suffering and in their struggle. Notice what it says in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. What kind of thinking? Well, suffering in the flesh. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The one who is living for Christ is going to suffer in the flesh. Verse 4 of chapter 4. Look with me, if you will. With respect to this, they are surprised, speaking of those who are unbelievers, those who are unregenerate, they are surprised when you do not, when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And what happens? They malign you. They malign you. They malign you for you're not wanting to live according to the standards of this world. Chapter 4, verse 4. And then finally, look with me, if you will, at chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Because Peter's explaining this, it's obvious that they are, should be expecting a fiery trial when it comes upon them. Because this is to test you. As though something, it shouldn't be something that's strange that's coming upon you. No, rejoice instead. And then he goes on and look with me there at verse 14 as it continues. And it says this in verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, what does that mean? That those who follow after Christ will be insulted. You are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Fiery trials, being insulted, sharing in the sufferings of Christ. You see, these are ways that the New Testament Christians, the Christians of 1 Peter's day, were being maligned and treated in certain ways. It isn't very ethereal. It's not like out there somewhere strange. It's talking about bosses and employees. It's talking about husbands and wives. It's talking about um, going about our daily living in the culture that we're in. And the question I have for you is, is this the way that the church is often viewed in our culture today? We're not here waving a flag trying to insist that we're, being, we're suffering in the same way that they were in First Peter's day. But more and more, this is true. Christians are maligned. We are treated as if we are strange or even um, accused of things when we choose not to live according to the values of the world. And this is happening more and more in our day. 
We need to be aware of this. And as we begin, as we work through 1 Peter, we need to understand that this is exactly where Peter is speaking to the saints of his day and exactly where Peter is calling us to be faithful as well. And as we, as Christ followers, become more and more marginalized or worse, cast aside by our society, when our serving and sacrifice and reviling isn't something that is affirmed like it used to be in our society, but it's maligned instead, you're not being loving it's easy for us to say, oh, wait a minute, we've got to be loving. We need to be loving. Um, those days have likely become fewer and fewer. Lawlessness of the national values that we have, often the values that are exalted, relent- exalted relentlessly, are not the values that God has called us to as his people. We must keep in mind this very truth. And this is the truth that Peter wants to make sure we hear this morning. And the question is this. How does God see us? What does God see us as? It doesn't matter what the world is calling us or what the world affirms in us or what the world says about us. What does God see us to be? That's what has to be in front of our mind. We need to look away from what the world says and how they label us or title us or speak of us and instead look to what Christ says, what the Word of God says, what God says is true of us. And we need to root our hearts in these things This is what Peter was wanting to do because these Christians were going through these kinds of sufferings, being slandered and maligned, being treated in an evil way and reviled, um, having to live with disobedient husbands and unjust bosses. How are they to live? They're to live with this very simple truth rooted firmly in our hearts and minds. Who are you in Christ? So this morning, I want us to notice this in verses 9 and 10. (coughs) We're going to look at this in three points. The three points for this morning are our status. Point number one, our status. This is the beginning of verse 9. Point number two is the end of verse 9. If you want to say 9b, you can. Point number one, our status. Point number two, our purpose. Our purpose. And then point number three, our basis. Our basis. Our status, our purpose. And then point number three, verse 10, our basis. Our basis. So let's begin with our status. This is at the beginning of verse 9. Has there ever been a time when identity has been so prominent, so volatile, so political, or even so celebrated as the day that we live in today? We live in a society that insists on and is desperate for identity. And as those in our culture grasp for any and everything that might somehow give them some kind of affirmed identity, whether it be sports teams or political parties or sexual expressions or environmental interests, we know that each attempt to find identity in something that is in today's institutions has either already failed us or is showing significant signs of crumbling. So, Do we see identity then as something that is simply a result of weakness and our fallenness and our sinfulness? No, no. Instead, our hearts long for identity, and this is why, because we're image bearers and we're to be rooted in who God says we are. So this desire for identity is right and true, but when it's found in so many other things that are in this world, it becomes something that is incredibly horrible and Honestly, a tyrant 
1 Peter chapter 1 and 2 has explained this with clarity. The world will continue to try to find its identity in those things that are perishing, tarnishing, fading away, an inheritance that will not last but will end instead in shame and dishonor. That's what chapters 1 and 2 have said already in 1 Peter. This is where our text then comes, and it speaks of a stark contrast between all of those who are trying to find their identity everywhere else in the world and those who are in Christ. Notice the stark contrast in verse 9. But you. You see what he's doing here. He's turning, Peter's turning and saying, but you, as opposed to those who are, who are stumbling over the offense of Christ as a cornerstone, those who are unbelievers and disobedient, you, in contrast, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Peter, obviously, here you can see, gives four titles that distinguishes their identity in contrast to the world's identity. And he's trying to build them up in Christ and show them that they must find their identity. They must root who they are in Christ and what he has done for them. And here what we see is that these phrases that are being used are actually Old Testament phrases that Peter is bringing forward. And so the first of these four is this, a chosen race. A chosen race. Under our status, a chosen race. What a precious truth, don't you think? For those in Peter's day who were cast out and rejected by their society, they're on the run. It says in chapter 1, verse 1, those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithany, and they're, and they're scattered throughout all of this region with their families, no longer able to have a regular life. Why? Because of their followers of Christ. When all, other, when all others repudiated them, Peter here is calling them to make sure that they understand themselves as a chosen race, or as he's mentioned in chapter 1, verse 1 before, an elect, that's the idea there, elect or chosen exiles. Chapter 1, verse 1 says, says, uh, speaks of this dispersion, Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Asia, and Bithany, and it says that they are these things, that they are scattered throughout this region according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience of Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of His blood. Do you see how this chosen status was not due to their own need. Sometimes we think that God needs to answer our prayers because our need is so great. It wasn't because of their need. It wasn't because of their ability. It wasn't because of their personal, personal interest. No, the reason they were a chosen race is accredited to, according to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1, the Father, the Spirit, and Jesus Christ. They're the ones who did this. And this phrase, this concept, is, is all over the Old Testament. But we notice that in, even in Deuteronomy chapter 7, that God's people, why were they chosen? Why were they God's people? It says in Deuteronomy 7 verse 6, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Do you hear some of the phrases that are actually in our passage? But out of all the people who were on the face of the earth... It was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on or that he chose you. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he has swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt." 
In other words, he's saying here that the reason they are, according to this passage, chosen isn't because of anything they have done or any status they have brought to the table, but only because of the mere love of the Father. For God so loved the world that he gave his Son. Now, we see here this word, this term, it's a chosen, here's the term, race. Wow, what a, what a lightning rod of a term these days, right? The word is generation in the King James Version. It has gained quite an unfortunate etymology. And etymology is the history of a, of a particular word or term. Sadly, most people narrow the word race in our day. They narrow the word race to simply be a term that speaks of the color of one's skin. And that's so very unfortunate. This term used here in Scripture speaks more broadly of one's ancestry or where one was born, what group of people were they born in. In other words, those with whom one is connected to in a genealogy. In fact, the Greek word for this word race is genos, for genealogy. This understanding of one's birth family is significant for us to understand this this chosen race. It's because Peter here has peppered the entire chapters 1 and 2 with this understanding. Peter says in chapter 1 verse 3 that according to his great mercy he has caused us to be born again. And then later, Peter calls us, as the followers who are called Christians, he calls them obedient children later in 1 Peter. And then he assumes that when we call upon God in prayer, we're going to refer to him as Father. Now, all of this, all of this family language speaks to something that's very, very important and that we need to understand. All this is insisting that those who are now elect and chosen must not understand themselves primarily according to their natural birth. Did you hear that? They're not to understand themselves primarily by their natural birth, but instead primarily to understand themselves as part of those who belong to a new race, this spiritual new birth that we possess in Christ. This was what was causing those who were running for their lives, for their faith in 1 Peter, and throughout the history of the church, those who became believers had the responsibility, and many of them were faithful to the responsibility, to leave their family and kin for the cause of following Christ. And this was right and faithful and good. This is the calling that we have. Now our priority is to the new birth that we've been given and to set aside the natural birth that we have and understand it is subordinate to the birth that Christ has given us when he regenerated us. When rejected and cast out by the world, we find our hope being brought near to God and a part of his family. So that no matter what we may lose here on earth, even kindred, we know that we are ultimately to root our hearts in this idea of being a chosen race. One who is first and foremost born again in Christ. That's the first term chosen race. Second term, royal priesthood. You see that here. A royal priesthood. Now how significant is this phrase? As we saw when we looked ahead in 1 Peter, we we noticed when we looked ahead in 1 Peter chapter 2 and 3 and 4 that there were many who were called as servants or as I explained, employees. And we know that they were daily getting out of bed maybe before dark, 
and going to work and facing that unjust boss again today because this was the calling that they had. We know from looking forward in 1 Peter that there were wives as believers that Peter was speaking to that was constantly sacrificing and submitting and serving their disobedient husbands. And I don't think it's a far-fetched to say they're disobedient children. You think their children might have been disobedient as well? Maybe so. Husbands, according to 1 Peter chapter 3, attempting to serve and live with their wives in an understanding way. Citizens, according to 1 Peter later on, trying to do good in a society filled with foolishness and ignorance. Unless we forget that these Christians shouldn't be idolized or understood as celebrities, we need to understand that these Christians that were trying to to live their lives being exiled, they too had kids that got sick. They too had jobs that were taken away from them. They too worked with all the struggles and maladies that we do in our own lives. They too had cars that broke down. Well, maybe they didn't have cars that broke down. But you know what I'm talking about there, right? You understand what I'm saying? Did they consider themselves, and do you consider yourself week in and week out trying to be faithful to what God's called you to? Do you consider yourself a royal priesthood? They didn't either. They didn't consider themselves a royal priesthood doing what God has called them to when they were leaving for work early in the morning or preparing food for the kids or trying to love their neighbor or the person beside them or trying to take care of the daily business of their lives and caring about the things that are around them. They didn't feel too much like royal priesthood. No, they didn't. They felt, well, very much like they were doing mundane, ordinary, and many times even mostly useless things throughout their life. And yet here, all who are in Christ, all of them and all of us, Peter here is saying that God sees you as a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. Now, I hope you don't hear this phrase and misunderstand this truth as teaching that you can go off by yourself and read your Bible in your closet and come to an understanding of God's Word by yourself because that's what it means when we hold to the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer. Um, That doctrine does not exist. All right, now you're shocked. The priesthood of the believer has never been a doctrine in the church. That's individualism. That's that's Americanism that's speaking to you there. The doctrine that has historically been held in the church is the priesthood of the believers. And it doesn't say that you can go to your closet and read your Bible and have your own interpretation and then that's all you need is me and Jesus in the Bible. That's more of your culture than anything else. The priesthood of believers says this instead. This doctrine, this teaching, calls us as priests to do what priests did in the Old Testament. And you know what they did in the Old Testament? They weren't off by themselves. It caused us to serve and to sacrifice and to love and to care for those God's called around us and to do that lovingly and willingly, no matter how unremarkable and tedious the job may be, God has called us to serve as royal kingly priests in his kingdom for his glory and allow his word and spirit to accomplish much in the lives of the people around us. Then that's not very flattering. I'd much rather have a, a priesthood of the believer, where I'm the autonomous authoritarian that can read my Bible and say whatever it believes. No, nope. the priesthood of believers has been very clearly articulated throughout the history of the church as 
simply this, that we serve one another and love one another sacrificially, no matter what that may cost us, that Christ and his kingdom may be exalted. This is the understanding of, as we see here, the royal priesthood. The third term, a holy nation. A holy nation identifies those in Christ as also from the Old Testament, a phrase that's brought from the Old Testament, specifically from Exodus 19, which was read for us this morning by Rashad. Think with me for a moment. This term was first used by those back in Exodus, in the time of Exodus. And this term was something that the Lord wanted his people to hear. And specifically there in Exodus 19, where they were three months into their wandering in the wilderness, and they were now at the foot of Mount Sinai. Think with me for just a minute how those elect exiles here in our text would have related those who are here in First Peter, who are dispersed and, and running for their lives. Imagine how they would have related to the Israelites who fled Egypt, and now they too were without homes and jobs, and they were living out and, and by, by the campfire as well. Now, they had been refugees in the wilderness, the exiles, the Israelite exiles, they had been refugees in the wilderness for a little over three months. And they found themselves camping on the edge of Mount Sinai. Now, no matter what some in this room may tell you, no matter how many times I see camping taking place, it just looks like homeless people. It just looks, it doesn't look like it's a fun experience. It's not something that I enjoy. There are others who do enjoy it. And I, I hope they enjoy that for, forever. But I am not that guy who, it just, it just doesn't seem to be a lot of fun for me. Nonetheless, these refugees were out sleeping on the ground by the campfire beside Mount Sinai. Do those wilderness wanderers understand themselves to be, do you think they ever kind of sat around and said, you know what, we're a holy nation. I'm sure it really didn't look like it. I'm sure it looked like they were basically just grasping for anything they could to be able to stay alive in the wilderness. I mean, if you remember, every time they drank anything or ate anything, it had to come from the hand of God because there was nothing out there. They were sitting on the side this massive mountain that didn't cause them to be comforted. But if you heard Rashad read, it caused them to tremble. They didn't believe themselves to be a holy nation any more than you and I do when we're sitting in this small building tucked away in this little road called Tracy Road in Jacksonville. We're not all impressed, impressive. We're not all that impressive by the world standards. Sitting here in this cement block building, pretty small by standards. In fact, most here in Jacksonville are far more interested, usually it's during the fall, in what is going on downtown with what is often called the Jaguar Nation. On Gator Bowl Boulevard, not on Tracy Road. God's people, this people here this morning, we are in God's eyes far more precious than that. We're a holy nation. And many of you have visited other faithful congregations in different places. And even you might have been discouraged by the smallness and insignificance that it seemed to be when you gathered with saints somewhere else in a congregation. We're very blessed um, in way of just the numbers that we have. But many of you have been to other churches where 
A couple dozen elderly saints are faithfully gathering to receive the ordinary, the ordinary means of grace on Lord's Day, and nobody's impressed. Nobody in this world is anyway. We're so prone to be distracted by the other things in this world, the pressing that is captivating our attention, and we even here can easily begin to forget that what the world has to offer is, has nothing in comparison to this gathered people this morning. That God calls a holy nation. The world instead says, this is worth it. Live for this. This is a new and shiny thing. This is a new experience for you and your family. Go off and have that. Show up at church whenever you can. This is where you can find joy and hope and help if you go in that direction. And yet, our Lord has called us a holy nation. A distinct people set apart, devoted to Him and for His purposes. That's why we're called holy. Listen to how the Lord spoke to the wandering Israelites, insisting on who they were, even though everything around them, notice they're sitting at the foot of a mountain, having been in the wilderness for, for, for three months, 90 days, and it seemed everything around them was contrary to what the Lord wanted to speak to them. Exodus 19. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, so they were three months out, on the day they came into the wilderness of Sinai, they set out for Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. Now while Moses was up in the, with God, it says this, The Lord called to him, Moses, out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel. Now what is it that God's going to tell these people who are now three months into the wilderness and sitting at the edge of this mountain, camping out, living homeless, knowing nothing of what they've known before, lost their jobs, lost their livelihoods, lost their homes. They at least had thresholds, right? Doorposts, because that's what blood went on, right? So they're leaving everything. They're living in tents now. What did the Lord want to tell them? You yourselves have seen, this is what the Lord's telling Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, holy priesthood, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. There it is. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is what the Lord wanted Moses to speak to Israel. Now, did they feel like they were being drawn near to the Lord? They were being tenderly and carefully cared for? They were in the wilderness, and it was hard. The Lord is saying, no, no, what you see is betraying you. What truly is is that you're a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a people for his own possession. I hope you heard these phrases in verse nine, in, 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 uh, from chapter 19 of Exodus coming forward here in verses 9 as we've been looking. And as we looked at 1 Peter 2, we see in Exodus 19 all of these phrases coming together. The last phrase that Peter uses in our passage in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, is this, a people for his own possession. This is the fourth and last phrase. This is also translated in other translations as a special possession. Many of you who have read King James for a while know that this is translated a peculiar people. 
Isn't that an interesting way of saying it? A peculiar people? This is not simply restating that they are a chosen race that was at the beginning of these four. Instead, here Peter is, is pointing out that the Lord has not only called them, that is their chosen race, but that he plans to reflect his glory and power through them as they live in the midst of their society. And that's what it means when it speaks of him as being a, a treasured, a, a, a special, a people for his own possession. As followers of Christ, those in the days of 1 Peter could have easily assumed that their lives were simply for the purpose of suffering, being despised, and being punished by all around them. However, Peter is saying, you are seeing things wrongly. Your hardships, your struggles, and your sorrows are not a proof of God's despising and rejecting you, but instead it is a proof that the Lord is calling you to be a distinct people, his own possession. The path may seem very bewildering and even hard, but we must trust that it is wise. That where the Lord has put us, <coughs> excuse me, as well as the, the where the Lord is, is leading us is perfect in his goodness. Isaiah 43, the prophet Isaiah is speaking to a bewildered people again. They were hauled off to captivity in Babylon. And he says he's going to lead them back. But notice how he says it in Isaiah 43, verse 16. Thus says the Lord, who made a way in the sea. Now, that's in the sea is a tumultuous place. It goes on, he says, a path in mighty waters. Now, why would you make a path in mighty waters? Why would you make a way in the sea? In other words, the Lord's saying here, this is a, a hard path that I'm leading you on. And then it says in Isaiah 43, verse 21, For I give water in the wilderness. Now, has the Lord done that before? He has. I give water where? In the wilderness. Rivers in the desert. Deserts don't have rivers. To give drink to my chosen people. The people who I have formed for myself that they might declare my praise. You see, what's happening here is the Lord is leading us on the path that he's leading us on. The Lord has led the people of 1 Peter's day on the path that they're on. The Lord has led the people that were in Babylon in exile on the path they were on. And the exiles in Egypt coming out of Egypt on the path that they were on. All for the purpose of singing and knowing the praises of the Lord. So we can constantly be going to the Lord for our provision and knowing that he was caring for us. We were as they were led by the Father's strong hand. And in that way, we are a peculiar people indeed. Point number two, I want you to notice here at the end of verse 9. The latter part of verse 9. Why are we made to be so identified with Christ and in these ways? As a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why are we called to be this, have this unique status? According to verse 9 at the end, notice it says, That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Here we see that we're given this unique status that we might proclaim the excellencies of our God. We are to declare or report or send out the message of the wondrous excellencies of our God in his salvation as he's delivered us. We're to tell of that. This is our unique calling because we are the ones whom the Lord has distinguished among all peoples and has done this work in the midst of. So we're the only ones who can do this work. We're the only ones who are able to tell of the excellencies of our God because we're the ones who know of it. 
We are to verbally tell of the excellencies of our Savior, yes, indeed. But we also are to proclaim it in such a way that we live our lives in a way that reflects this gospel that we declare. This is why in chapter 1, he tells us that we're to live a living hope, walk in holiness, conduct ourselves with fear, live deliberately and circumspectly in this world. So we're to declare this message. That's how we proclaim the excellencies. But we're to live this message out. Think of how those in the wilderness campfires. If you go back to the Exodus and they're sitting there at the edge of Mount Sinai, or maybe as they were traveling over those three months, and at night they were camping they're setting up camp. Imagine those, those wilderness campfires, how the Israelites over those three months, what do you think they were doing? Just setting up camp, putting it together, and then, and then going to bed? Or do you think the parents used this as an opportunity to talk about or to even just be astonished at what they saw in their God as the plagues were going through Egypt? And how God worked in a mighty way. Don't you think the story of some of those happened to be spoken of around those campfires? What about walking across the Red Sea on dry ground? Do you think that story might have come up around the campfire? Likely. Likely. God's people, God's people were, in that way, proclaiming the excellencies of what their Lord, their God, their Deliverer did for them. Why? Because they were unique in their deliverance. God was calling them out to be a particular people. They may have told of the plague of the swarms of the flies, right? Sitting around the campfire one night, several sitting there, and they were talking about the swarms of the flies and how that took place and how the Egyptians had flies even in their houses, they said. But we never saw a fly, not even one in our house. Exodus 8, verse 21, And the house of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies, and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, that's the land where the Israelites were, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there. Why? That you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. In other words, that I'm the God who controls flies. Proclaiming the excellencies of his, their God. Or maybe the next night the children were gathered around the warmth of the fire and the Men or women began telling a story, the awful story of when the, all the Egyptians' livestock died. Exodus 9 says, Behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses and the donkeys and the camels and the herds and the flocks. Listen. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this, did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died. Listen. But not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. Do you think they were telling of the excellencies of their God? The power and majesty of their God? Oh, how excellent our God is to deliver his people. But what do we do when problems and difficulties and hardships happen in our life? We're convinced that God doesn't have the power to take care of this issue in my life. I've mentioned this before, brothers and sisters, and I'll tell you again. When you're praying and praying and praying and praying for your spouse to be healed, for your job to come about, for provision to be made, the reason you don't have those things isn't because God can't do it. We pray 
And then we stand up and we go forward in faith on that day, knowing that God is good and that he's going to care for us in the day that he's given to us. Now, what about, what about this last story? I want to mention this last story that the Israelites might have been telling around the campfire. More than likely, this is the one that made them tremble and fear the most. It was about their last night in Egypt. You guys remember that? No doubt they were telling that story. Who can forget it? Exodus 11. Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt. Can you imagine laying in your dark house as an Israelite that night? Hearing the cries coming from that area? The screams of moms and dads who have lost their firstborn? Such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. Notice this though. Notice what it says here. And listen carefully. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel. Either man or beast. Why? That you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So are you telling of the excellencies of Jesus Christ, your Savior, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light? Are you telling of, your, of those excellencies? Our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ who has called us out of this world, this world of foolishness and darkness, of, according to 1 Peter 4.3, of living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry? Have you told of the excellencies of your God who's called you out of that? Our confession tells us that this is exactly what it means to be a church. Our confession in chapter 26, paragraph 5, says this, The Lord Jesus calls out of the world unto himself through the ministry of his word and by his spirit those who are given unto him by his Father. Why? That they may walk before him in all the ways of obedience, which he prescribes to them in his word. Those thus called, he commands to walk together in particular societies, that is, churches, for their mutual edification. So we're to be edifying one another, telling of the excellencies of Christ to one another, and due performance of that public worship, which, is requi- which he requires of them in the world. Now, we're called to live in the light of eternity, abiding in the truth of God's word. Now, I've heard some of you, I've overheard the conversations that some of you have had talking about your prior life, prior to Christ, and what the Lord brought you out of. What a story. What a glorious story of how the Lord brought you out of incredible things to make, him, make you his own. Others of you I've heard coming out of homes that made very little of Christ. If Christ was even mentioned at all, his name was used more as a word for blaspheme than a word of praise. The Lord brought you out of that. You spoke of these excellencies of our Savior in that way. More than this, why do you come to church on Sundays? Well, it's to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you and me out of darkness into his marvelous light. We do this when we sing these truths to one another as we sing together. 
We do this when we listen to the promises of God's word read to us in the midst of our congregation. And when they're read, we say amen, affirming that these truths aren't just some truths that are out there, but they're truths for us and God's people. We do this when we listen together at the prayers of the saints that call upon the name of our God because we're weak and weary saints doubting so often. And the prayers of the saints build us up because they speak of the excellencies of our God. We proclaim His excellencies as as you sit there and hear the sermon this morning. And then later this week, you're going to be encouraging and strengthening and stirring one another up to faithfulness to what this sermon has said, what God has said to you. And you're going to be sharing with one another how you struggle in this way. These are the ways you speak of the excellencies of Him who's brought you out of darkness into His marvelous light. You sit around, many of you will sit around each other's dinner table this week. Or maybe across from each other in living rooms. Today, this very day, you're going to stand outside of this building and be talking to one another after worship. Tonight, after the prayer meeting, there will be those who will be sitting in the chairs that you're sitting in talking to one another about the excellencies of what God has done in your life and how you're seeking to be faithful to what God's called you to in the future and how your heart is longing to cling to these very truths, how he brought you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And if you're like And if you're like one of those Israelite children sitting around the wilderness campfire and you overhear people talking either out in the driveway or in the building, you'll hear them giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's what you'll overhear when you hear these saints talking about the excellencies of their Savior. Finally, number three, I want us to close verse 10. We've come to verse 10, and I mentioned earlier that this is actually a transition. We're starting to turn. It says, beloved, here in verse, verse 11 of chapter 2, and then again in verse chapter 4, verse 12. It's starting another section, but this is the end of the section. And before he turns, Peter turns to another section, before he begins to talk about other things, which is basically how they can live in the world um, that's hostile to them as sojourners and exiles. Before he gets to that, he wants to remind them of a very important truth that they need to understand. And I want you to hear it this morning as well. Verse 10 says this. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The first thing I want you to recognize here, not only here in this text, but also throughout our Bible, as we understand this, is that we cannot understand ourselves apart from understanding ourselves as a people of God. A people of God. I hope you can see here just how impossible it is for these Christians and us today and anybody throughout the history of the church to ever think that they can live in Christ, for Christ, on their own and by themselves. It is absolutely absurd to think that way. It is impossible for us to think that we can be Christians and yet we have no body of believers around us stirring us up, encouraging us, helping us, walking with us along the way. That is absolutely absurd. It is like like attempting to be a nose by yourself. Imagine, so children, think about this for me. Children, zone in for a minute. I want you to get your pencil or your pen, and I want you to draw for me this. Draw a nose, but don't put it on a face. 
Just a nose. All I want is a nose. Now, that's going to look silly, isn't it? You, now, I want you to draw it. You can still draw it. Try to. But know that if you don't put it somewhere, if you don't have it connected to something, it's ridiculous. It's absurd. Just as absurd as anyone here this morning sitting thinking that you can be a follower of Christ and you can do it on your own or by yourself or without a body of believers. Not just people that you kind of hang out with, or, or, but a covenant body of believers. Someone that you're committed to and they're committed to you walking together in Christ. A nose without a face is absurd. A Christian without a congregation is absurd. It is nowhere found in the scriptures. Equal to this insanity is trying to live our lives as individuals, long-ranger Christians. The first fundamental truth that Peter is trying to explain to these people is don't get away from your church. Don't get away from God's people. If you do, you'll never live this life out. You'll never be able to. That's the first thing he wants them to understand. That they are God's, not individuals, but they're God's people. It says here, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. The second truth I want you to notice here is this. And he's insistent that we understand this. Peter is drawing from the Old Testament book of Hosea. If you never read the book of Hosea, read it and uh, brace yourself when you do if if you're reading it for the first time. Many of you know who have read Hosea that the message of Hosea pictures Israel's amazing unfaithfulness and yet the Lord's amazing mercy to preserve them despite their horrendous sin. Is that a good take of Hosea? Right? Hosea had two children by his wife who kept running off and trying to be a prostitute. It's it's a pretty amazing story. Because she had these two children through her work of prostitution, the Lord tells Hosea to name the two children this. And they're actually Hebrew names and they're one word, but because they're English names, they're two words. Okay, so it wasn't they were using English. They're actually using Hebrew here. But Hosea was told by God to name these two children this. Child number one, I want you to name no mercy. No mercy. Child number two, I want you to name not my people. Not my people. And the reason is because these children were not from a faithful, from being faithful to Hosea, the husband, but instead by being unfaithful as a prostitute. Peter is drawing on that prophet in our text here this morning, and this desperate event, this horrendous event, he recalls the Lord's astonishing promise to Hosea. So Hosea 1, chapter 1, is where the children are born and they're named. Hosea chapter 2, near the end, listen to this. Astonishing mercy. Hosea chapter 2, verse 20. This is God speaking to Hosea. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. In this book, the Lord is basically saying, Hosea, your responsibility is to be faithful to your wife. Why? Because I'm never going to be unfaithful to you as a church, as a people of God. I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. No matter what your faithfulness is like or faithlessness is like. He says, I'm going to betroth you to me in faithfulness. God says, I'm going to be faithful no matter what. And then it goes on in Hosea chapter 2, verse 23, and it says this. I will have mercy, this is God speaking, I will have mercy on no mercy. 
And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Can you imagine being named no mercy and not my people? And then later on in their life saying, Lord, you are my God. Some of you know exactly what that's like. Many of you who who have experienced the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ know exactly what that's like. Do not forget the cesspool of sin and wickedness and guilt and misery that our God has brought us from. He has shown us mercy. It was not because we had one iota of worth and value in us that he called us to himself. Here's the point. We are chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, only and entirely because of the lavish grace of our God upon us in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, why did Peter think that it was absolutely necessary for these people to hear this at the very end of the section before he goes into the section where he's calling them to be faithful and to live faithfully in their life? It's for two reasons. One is because we need to hear about God's mercy and his mercy towards us and how lavish and amazing it is because we are so prone to despair. None of us have got it together. None of us can get on our feet. Every one of us are at the verge of throwing the towel in and giving up and saying, you know what, following Christ is way too hard, too overwhelming. I've got too many other things on my plate. We need to remember that it's never been about us and what we can do for the Lord. It's been about His mercy. It's never been about how well we can perform or the ability we have to continue in our faithfulness. It is about, in those final moments of our last dripping strength, we cast ourselves back upon the mercy of our Savior because His mercy is new every morning. And that's the only thing we have to stand on. So the reason He's telling us that we had at one point not received mercy, but now we have received mercy is to, is to help us in our despair. But secondly, we're not only prone to despair, but sadly in our hearts we're also prone to pride. Thomas Watson, a Puritan, said it this way, Every time you draw a breath... You suck in mercy. Every time you draw a breath, you suck in mercy. What do we have that we have not received from the hand of our Lord? Yes, we're called and we're seen by our God as a chosen, royal, holy, precious possession. But never allow that to cause us to look down on the world as if, as if we did something to be where we are and that they just need to get their lives together. When we call upon our siblings and upon our family members and upon our co-workers and upon those who are around us to come to faith in Christ, it's not a better argument that they need. They need the Spirit of God to open their eyes. They need to be shown mercy. Mercy upon mercy. You and I, when we came to our Savior, we brought nothing to the table except for our sin, our guilt, and our misery. Our Savior, when He comes to that same table, He brings His perfect righteousness and we receive it by faith. Our sins are so very many, but His mercy is indeed more. The reason we are our people, the reason we are what God says we are and who we are in His eyes is because we're a people who have received mercy. Period. 
Psalm 123 says it this way. Behold, as the eyes of a ser- of, uh, behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he has shown mercy upon us. Let us pray.